in Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 10. But this is going to be an interactive class today. So uh, is this Bible in Spanish here? Yeah. Okay. You can read that one, and I'll have your mother-in-law read this one. And she can read it in Spanish. That'll be fine. And take a couple of you guys here to look those verses up. I'll call on you when we get there. Got a couple of verses here for everybody to to uh, look up. Not everybody gets the opportunity today, but. <laughs> Sorry, may I read it in Spanish? You may, if you'd like. Either way works. So I'll I'll call on you when the time gets near to look these verses up. But uh, last week, we, we talked about two fellows. Remember who they were? Tychicus and Onesimus. You remember those? Okay. Well, Tychicus uh, was described as a beloved brother and faithful minister and also a fellow servant. Uh, his purpose was to inform the Colossians of Paul's activities and to encourage their hearts. So he was being sent. Uh, from Rome to the Colossians there. And Onesimus was to go with him, apparently a slave that had, that had uh, run off and had come to know the Lord under Paul's ministry there and, and now was being returned as a son and uh, to also help take the letter back to the Colossians and then uh, the letter to Philemon, his master uh, also. So these verses, starting with uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, uh, are held together by a theme. Right there in that verse 10, there's a greeting. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greeting. And, and so that greeting runs down through uh, a number of verses here at the end. And we're going to take a look at, at those as we go along. But they're all held together in the same way. Uh, these greetings were to the Colossians from three Jewish co-workers of Paul's, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, and then from three Gentile co-workers, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. And uh, Paul asked that his own greetings then be conveyed to the Christians at Laodicea, to Nympha, and to the church that meets at her house. So greetings of this kind were, were fairly common at the time in, in writing, and uh, Paul uses them extensively. Uh, seven of his 12 letters that, that Paul wrote have these kind of greetings in them. Uh, in, in Romans, there are 26 people that he names that, to take greetings to. Uh, and here we have, uh, what, seven? And, uh, and then there's some others that convey less number than that, but there are seven altogether. Uh, epistles that uh, Paul sent these greetings. Uh, and as we might expect from the close relationships that Paul had with these people, uh, a number of these people are named in the different letters. So the same person would be named maybe in Romans and here in Colossians. And so there are uh, five of the six men mentioned here in Colossians are also mentioned in Philemon, for example. Uh, so it really shows Paul's concern to reach the communities that he had been to, but in this case, a community that he had not been to. He had not been to Colossae in all the, the readings that I've read that he had not been there, but he sends this letter to them. So it shows a great concern that he had for the church. Not, not the church building, not the church that met at their house, but the believers everywhere that Paul ministered to, and especially those now as he's writing to the Colossians. So we're just going to take a look at these people, but, but I want you to think as we take a look at each one of these people and kind of trace them through Scripture just a little bit to find out a little bit more about who they are. Uh, I want you to consider what you said this morning. We've got the gospel going to Venezuela. 
We've got the gospel in Columbia sitting right here with us today. Hallelujah. And you are taking those, the gospel to those places. You're taking them to your neighborhoods. You're bringing people here. I think that's what we're going to see about Paul's ministry. He was in prison in Rome when he wrote this. So he couldn't go anyplace. He was a prisoner. But he was sending out the gospel through these people into the neighborhoods and into the countries that were around him. So I just really, it just really warms my heart. I commend you all for taking the gospel to all the places that, that you're taking it. That's, that's biblical. We'll find out as we go through this. So let's take a look at Aristarchus here. He's the first one. He was a Jewish believer. If you look at verse 11, verse 11 tells us that, that these first three were, were Jewish people, Jews of the diaspora. Uh, it is a Greek name. He was a native of Thessalonica. So, uh, Pablo, read those two verses, if you will, please, sir. Acts 20, verse 4, and 27, verse 2. Y'all can look them up, too, if, if you'd like. I've got them in your notes there. Oh, do you? Okay. Well, number one. Who has number one? You have it. He gave it to you. Go ahead. Yeah. You can you can read it in English. <laughs> okay. If you want to do it in Cajun, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so here are these guys, right? And one of those guys is, uh, is uh, Aristarchus. And that's the guy that we're studying right here. So he was of Thessalonica. So we know where he's from. What about number two? 27-2. Or, or actually Acts 19-29. Is that what it is? Yeah. Did I give you 27 too? That'll be fine. Yeah, that'll be fine. Okay. Read 27 too. I got my numbers mixed up here. Okay, so what he said was, and embarking in an intermittent ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, so this was Paul, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So we see Aristarchus firmly implanted in Scripture and in Paul's ministry at various places. So... Uh, uh, and we know where he was from. And he first uh, appeared in Paul's ministry at Ephesus. He was seized there by a rioting mob. Who has Acts 19.29? Okay. Okay, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater. So the, the Jews were stirring up this riot, remember? And they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus, our fellow here, into the theater. And it says Aristarchus was Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia. So we see this is the same Aristarchus. We see that he was in the ministry with Paul we see that he's the one that got, you know, in the middle of the riot and they drug him in uh, to, the, uh, to the amphitheater there. And then, then the, remember, the town clerk stood up and said, hey, guys, we're, we're going to get in trouble for this riot. Let's, let's cool it, basically. And uh, 
the story goes on from there, but that's not our story today. Okay, so uh, that's who, who Aristarchus was. And uh, then we see him again uh, on uh, Paul's return trip to Jerusalem. Acts 24, number 3 there. Who has that one? Okay, I'll read it. And he was accompanied by Sophiter of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, that's what you read, and, and Tychicus and Tromephus uh, of Asia. So here were all these guys together ministering with Paul uh, on his journeys. Uh, and he, uh, he accompanied Paul on his trip, on his voyage to Rome, where we find him now. Who has number four there, Acts 27, two? Okay, read that. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, so here we find him in the world again, embarking on a ship which was to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, and they put out to sea. This was Paul under arrest now and being sent back to Rome. Uh, and he was accompanied. We put out to sea, it says. We'll talk about that later. Who is we? Who's included in that? Here's some of the guys, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Luke. We put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus. There he is, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Same Aristarchus. Uh, so there he was part of Paul's ministry there. And, uh, and it's possible that he stayed with Paul throughout Paul's uh, uh, imprisonment here in, uh, in, in Rome. And it's likely that he stayed with Paul during that Palestinian uh, imprisonment before his, in his various trials there before he got sent to Rome. It looks like, as you read through this, the conclusion would be he was with Paul there. Uh, and so he just, he's described as a fellow prisoner uh, of, of, uh, of uh, Paul's here. So that comes from this Greek word, which I won't try to pronounce, but that Greek word literally means one caught with a spear. One caught with a spear. So you can see a, a, a soldier you know, coming up and, and catching an, a, an, a, an enemy soldier with a spear and taking him captive or taking him prisoner. That's the literal meaning here. That doesn't necessarily mean that Aristarchus was a prisoner that had been arrested and was in jail. It could mean here, and more likely means, that, that he self-imposed on himself being a prisoner with Paul to help Paul out in this imprisonment. But Paul calls him a fellow prisoner because he was there with him. Aristarchus was there with Paul, ministering to Paul uh, as a sacrifice to, to be able to do that for Paul. More than likely, that's what that means. He volunteered to share Paul's imprisonment in order to help him. He chose to make Paul's lifestyle his own. Talks about a little bit about Aristarchus's heart there. He gave up his own freedom to minister to Paul's needs. Uh, and then also we come to the second person here. And also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Uh, Barnabas' cousin Mark. This is John Mark, and he had a very different... Uh, career in the ministry than either Titicus or Aristarchus. Uh, remember, John Mark was the one that later, uh, or, or had prior to this, uh, deserted Paul in the ministry. And it be, he became a source of friction between Paul and Barnabas. So uh, he was the, the son of a woman in whose house the early Jerusalem cr Christian community met. Who has number five, Acts 12, 12? Okay. Yeah. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, 
Okay, so this is his background. This is uh, Aristarchus' background. And yes, that was Peter talking there. So these guys got around together. <laughs> they knew each other. They were ministering together with Paul. Uh, if you remember the story, and I'll just go through it briefly, Barnabas and Saul had, had taken up a collection from the churches in Antioch, uh, and it was being sent to the Christians in Jerusalem. And uh, here's what happened. Who has number six, Acts 12, 25? 1225, okay. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. So John Mark was a part of this ministry, maybe as, as a, as a uh, uh, disciple, being discipled, uh, it sounds like. They, they also took along with him John Mark, uh, but he was... Uh, uh, Nonetheless, a close associate with all these men. And, uh, and after that, he uh, then accompanied Paul and Barnabas, uh, who has number seven, Acts 15, 38. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so uh, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey had taken John Mark along with them. And as, uh, as was intimated there, Mark left the ministry. He, he turned around and went home. He left the trip and he went home. Uh, some people say he abandoned the ministry. So Barnabas wanted to take his cousin now along on the second missionary journey but Paul, not trusting Mark to be loyal, refused to take him. And so that led to a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And so uh, who has Acts 15, 38 there? Or... So the guys continued their ministry, but they had had a disagreement about John Mark. And, uh, and uh, probably, uh, who, who knows what, what the answer to that is. <laughs> Uh, some see this rift as uh, some kind of a blot on the character of Paul or something like that. I, I, I don't see it that way. I see it as, as here's guys ministering together. Uh, the, the, as we'll see a little bit later, some of the Jews believed and many turned away. Some of the Gentiles believed and many turned away. So it was a hostile environment. They had already been in, or they were being in riots and you know, thrown into jails and things of that nature. And so Paul thought it best not to take John Mark along with them. And of course, Barnabas being, you know, John Mark was his cousin, so there was a little bit of a family, you know, connection there. He thought it would be okay. Uh, but uh, so they, they just split. They each took their own journey and took someone else, uh, or Paul took someone else with him. And Barnabas took uh, John Mark with him. We think this split must have taken place around A.D. 49. And we hear nothing more about Mark until about 12 years or so later. So there was quite a time between this rift, or, or uh, John Mark's abandonment of the ministry, mid-trip there, and the rift that, that Paul and Barnabas had, there was about 12 years or perhaps a little bit more time between that and now what we see here uh, in Colossians. So uh, what does it say in Colossians about this John Mark now? 4.10, and also Barnabas, Barnabas' cousin Mark, and here's what it says, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. What, what, was Paul's, what was Paul's thought about John Mark now? Do you see a difference between that and the rift that they had before? Yeah, it's quite different, and we'll see even, even more as we go into some other scriptures here. Uh, who has Philemon 24? Okay, read that. And so do Mark. I expect it to be 
Okay, so here, I mean, that's just a short verse and it doesn't give us much of the context, but what it does tell us is that Aristarchus, Mark and Aristarchus, and Demas and Luke was Paul's, what? Fellow workers. So that word fellow workers means that, that Mark had been accepted. Paul was now sending him out. Uh, and then look at 2 Timothy 4.11, number 10. Okay. Okay, so now Mark had become profitable for the ministry, or he's become useful for service. So, uh, what happened? He grew up. He grew spiritually. He was with this group of disciples. He got discipled, and his life changed. And now he's useful for the ministry where before he had abandoned the ministry. So there's hope for me, I guess. <laughs> okay. Hope for all of us. Uh, and uh, later, he wrote a gospel from Rome, the Gospel of Mark. So we, we see what his heart really is and how the Lord used him. And Paul told the Colossians here that if Mark came to them, and we don't know that he did, but if, if he did, he says, they were to obey their instructions. And that may be referring to Paul and Peter or Barnabas, uh, but anyway, Mark was conveying those instructions to them. And they were to welcome him. Uh, perhaps they had heard about Mark's abandonment before or something, but Paul was making sure that the Colossians welcomed him as, as a minister of the gospel here. Okay, they weren't to shun him. Let's move on to our uh, next person who is uh, Jesus, who is called Justice, uh, verse 11, and also Jesus, who was called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Now, uh, we, we see justice nowhere else in Scripture except right here in this verse, so we don't, don't know a lot about him. Uh, it, it's possible that he was one of the Roman Jews who believed Paul's message back in Acts 28-24 when... Uh, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Perhaps he heard Paul speak. We don't know. Uh, that's just conjecture that perhaps. But anyway, he had, he had, he had come to Christ. Uh, he was a Jew. And uh, it, it goes on to, to include uh, justice along with Aristarchus and Mark. Paul's only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. So we get, get from that, these, these were Jewish believers. That they had, they had stuck it out, they had uh, <laughs> stuck with Paul, they had stuck through the persecution and rejection, and, and they were with Paul now in Rome. You know, the lack of, of acceptance of the, of the Jews must have grieved Paul's heart. Uh, we we, we re read in Romans, what is it, chapters uh, 9 through 11, I think, as uh, Tom taught through those. Uh, Paul's heart was grieved for his countrymen. He desired to see his countrymen, the, the Jews, come to know Jesus Christ. And many did not. And so that had to grieve his heart. Uh, and, he, and he got a lot of that persecution on his missionary journeys. Uh, as, long, as well as from the Gentiles, he longed to see the Gentiles come to know Christ. So there wasn't any exclusion there. He longed to see the Gentiles. And many of the Gentiles believed and turned against him also, or turned against the Lord. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. there, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, he says, dangers from the Gentiles 
So we see him enumerating here various trials and dangers that he faced, and the, the Jews and the Gentiles were both included in that. But uh, they moved on anyway. Um, And Paul refers to the kingdom here. What kingdom do you think he was talking about? Was he talking about the kingdom of God that would be established later when Jesus comes again? Or was he talking about the kingdom of God that was being established right there during his ministry? Kind of gave you a clue there. <laughs> uh, we think he, he's talking about the, the kingdom that, that was being established right there, going from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're talking about salvation here and Paul's ministry in the context, Paul's uh, personal ministry as well. Uh, only these three proved to be an encouragement. They have proved to be an encouragement. Or comfort uh, can be translated, a comfort to him. And this word appears only here in the New Testament. Uh, These three men, Justice and Aristarchus and Mark, they were a source of comfort and encouragement to Paul. We don't know exactly how they comforted Paul, whether it was through their hard work for the kingdom or more likely in their personal ministry to Paul in his imprisonment. Now we see that, that some of them were active in the ministry uh, and going out with the gospel. Uh, but here the references to Paul while he's in prison and, and their personal ministry to him while he was there incarcerated. Okay. Then let's go on. Epaphras, uh, verses 12 through 13. Epaphras was, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Here we see that word greetings again. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Okay, so we've got several different things there uh, that, that are talked about along with Epaphras. So let's, let's take a look at that as we, as we go along. We're on the second page of my notes there now. The first thing we see there, he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number. So he, he was from Colossae. He's one of their number. Uh, but more than that... Uh, he probably was the founder of the Colossian church, and most likely he was their current pastor. So uh, we see from chapter 1 of Colossians, as he was addressed there, that more than likely he had founded not only the church at Colossae, but more than likely the one in Laodicea and perhaps the one in Hierapolis. And those three cities were, were uh, all in the Lycus Valley, if you remember the introduction we did. Some of you were here for that. To Colossians, they're, they're all together within maybe 10 or 15 miles of each other in the Lycus Valley, which was, which was on some of the major trade routes uh, through that region. And uh, so more than likely, he was the founder of the Colossian church, and more than likely, uh, he was their pastor. He ministered to them. He was the one that ministered the word to them. Uh, so he was one of them, at least, if not more. He had journeyed to Rome to bring Paul news of the Colossian heresy, which we've studied before. Uh, the Colossian heresy was threatening the churches of the Lycus Valley. So he had, he had gathered his intelligence of what was going on in his churches there, and he felt like he needed to go to Paul and get some direction. So that's why he showed up in Rome here. And now he was being sent back with Paul's letter that addressed this heresy. And we've seen the result of that in all the classes we've had so far. Now he was a bond slave. He was designated a bond slave. 
Now, some, some translations say servant. Uh, the New American Standard is bond slave. It's the Greek word uh, doulos, which most of us uh, take on the translation bond slave. Uh, the word applies to slaves in a legal status, so it, it's used in Scripture as a, as a legal status of a slave and ownership of that slave. But it can also be applied to people who have been enlisted in the service of the Lord, which I think is what we see in the context here. He was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ didn't have any legal slaves, so this must have been he was enlisted as a servant in the ministry uh, that Jesus had. Uh, the only individuals we, we seem to see named as bondservants in this sense are himself in several different places and Timothy and then, of course, Epaphras here. So this naming of Epaphras as a servant of Jesus Christ or a bond slave of Jesus emphasizes his status and the significance for that community of the Colossians there. The commendation makes perfect sense as a comment from Paul himself, who wants to assert Epaphras' authority over the false teachers that were beginning to invade Colossae here. So this wasn't just a, just a little, uh, you know, quick reference, you know, to, to, uh, to Epaphras here. Uh, this was a specific designation for him to take back, to have authority uh, in bringing Paul's teaching and his, and his own authority as perhaps their pastor uh, over these false teachers that were coming in uh, through the Lycus Valley. So it's kind of interesting here how um, the Lord equips the, the various people that he wants to send to a particular place for a particular ministry. And that's where I come back to We've got a brother going to Venezuela for a particular ministry. Uh, going to Colombia, taking the word of God uh, to our neighbors, to the people down the street, to the people that we know. Uh, in a sense, we're bond slaves. As we mature in the ministry, we are bond slaves. We are taking uh, God's word against the of the good news of Jesus Christ against the false teaching of the world view that's out there everywhere. So you, we can see ourselves in this as well as uh, what was going on back then. So the word of God just lives today just like it did back then. It's amazing. And what did Epaphras do? He was separated from his flock back in Colossae, but what does it say? He was still ministering to the Lycus Valley churches by always laboring earnestly for them in his prayers. So while he was in Rome, he was praying for those guys. Laboring earnestly is uh, from the word <laughs> agonizai, something like that, from which our English word agonize comes from. And so it's used in 1 Corinthians 9.25, among other places. Let me find my place here. I had 20 of these things, and there weren't... I, I didn't pass them out to everybody. <laughs> uh, let's see, 13, let me find it. Oh, in 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games... Now, we're talking about these Olympian-type games. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, do, uh, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable wreath. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. That word competes, when those Olympians were competing, they were agonizing. Think about all the stuff we see on TV today about how these Olympians prepare for those Olympics. They agonize for that, for that prize of getting that medal. Uh, and so uh, that's what 
that's what uh, Epaphras was doing here. He was agonizing in prayer. Uh, we also see it in Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, uh, speaking of Christ here, and being in agony, he was praying, praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He was praying so fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood. So that's that same word, agonize. And so that's, that's the, the intensity that Epaphras was praying for his people with. It refers to a strenuous and consistent intervention with the Lord on behalf of the Colossians. Not just that he, he had a strenuous intervention at the beginning and then kind of backed off. It was continuous. You know, the Olympians, they, 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 they exercise and practice all the time. That's all they do. Uh, to make it to the top there. And so that, that is, again, is the way Epaphras was, uh, was praying for them here. Okay. And what did he pray? The goal of Epaphras' prayers was that the Colossians stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. That was the content that, they, that he prayed, that, he, that they would stand firm or stand perfect. So there's many references here, and I, I gave you, I think, a bunch of those, uh, but we're going to look at just one of them or two of them. Romans 11.20. Speaking about uh, the... Uh, Jews who were uh, broken off the tree, they were broken off for their unbelief, but he says, you, talking about the Christians, stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. So the Jews were broken off that tree of Christ because of their unbelief, but he was talking to the Christians here. He said, but you stand by your faith. And again, uh, in Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, it's the full armor of God passage. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of all that, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So uh, that's what Epaphras was praying here. He was praying in this same sense that they would stand. So what do we learn from these parallel passages? What, what does standing really mean? Well, that we're not overcome by, by sin, by unbelief, by the worldviews of false teachers, that we stand against that. We stand in our position in Jesus Christ. Perfect prayer for those in Ephesus, perfect prayer for us today. Uh, if they stand uh, perfect, as the New American Stan Standard says, and that's from teleos, it means complete, mature, or fully developed. They would stand complete and mature and fully developed, as we have discussed. Fully assured from a Greek word that could be translated persuaded or satisfied fully. So there's, there's no shakiness. There, there's no wavering in this standing. They're fully assured. They're persuaded. They're satisfied fully in their position in Christ, and therefore they are able to stand firm.
Okay. And Paul had talked about knowing the mysteries of God before as we studied through Colossians, that they would know the mysteries of God, that they would have that complete understanding of what God was doing and what God had said. And so this is consistent with what Paul had been teaching all through Colossians. Epaphras was taking that and he was applying that in his prayers for his people back in Colossae. What a ministry. Okay. Um, and, uh, in, and that they would stand in all the, perfectly in all the will of God, it says. Now, what is the will of God that they would stand in? Here a while back, I passed out a, uh, a sheet of paper in here. We were studying what, what would be the will of God. And God gives us his will in Scripture. If you, if you want to do a little search or if you have that paper that I gave you, there are some things that say in Scripture, this is the will of God, and it describes it for you. <clears throat> um, so that's a good study. But... Uh, Ephesians 4, 13 through 14 here, kind of summarizes that whole idea of this, of this will of God. And it describes it this way, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, not ourselves, of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So that will of God fits right in here to standing firm, doesn't it? That we, we are to stand in this unity of faith that we are attaining in the knowledge of the Son of Man, that we would be mature in that and that we would be mature in the fullness of Christ. And the result we see here in these men's lives, that's what Epaphras was praying for his people. So then in verse 12, there's a little word there, and it says for. Nope, that's not the right verse. The next verse, I lost my, my place there, so let me look it up. Oh, yeah, verse 13. It says, for, after speaking about the will of God, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. That little word for... Um, many times is used uh, to, to, to ground something or to explain something. But here, it's just adding an additional thought. So the additional thought is what? What does it say in verse 13? Okay, yeah. I testify for him, for Epaphras, Paul is testifying of Epaphras, that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. So this was an additional thought that Paul gave to how Epaphras was praying. And that was such an encouragement. Sometimes these little additional thoughts are so encouraging. So think of what the Colossians thought when they heard this read to them here is this guy that has such a deep concern that even Paul is speaking about that concern for them wouldn't that endear you to your leader wouldn't that encourage you to be the same way for somebody else that maybe was weaker in the faith or had no faith at all so Paul uh, used his words well here okay so, um, okay, so Paul kind of ends this section of greetings here with Luke and Demas. 
who could be no further apart than any two men that I know of. <laughs> uh, but Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Who was Luke? Okay, well, uh, for one thing, we know from this verse that he was a physician. And we know that he was Paul's good friend, the beloved physician. And we know that he was a Gentile believer. And that's all we know. That's all this verse says. And we don't find much more about Paul or Luke anywhere else in Scripture, really. Now, that doesn't mean he's not, not anyplace else in Scripture. But by name, that's all we know. Now, from his writings, we know that he was probably an educated, cultured man because of his literary quality of his Greek and his gospel, the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. And uh, his conversations with Paul, I can just imagine what they were like. Uh, Dr. Royball is a doctor, and when I talk with him, about my knee that hurts really badly and he's advised me a little bit about that. He's not my doctor, but he advises me a little bit. He speaks a language that I can understand, but it's, it's at a different level than, oh, my knee hurts. He can tell me why it hurts and what I need to do about it and what I can do in the meantime. And so you can imagine Paul's conversations with, with uh, Dr. Luke, his beloved physician. Okay, so Paul or Luke is mentioned by name in the New Testament only here uh, and in the parallel greeting in Philo, uh, Philemon 24, which we've all already read, he's named there, uh, and in 2 Timothy 4.11. And uh, there Paul said, uh, when, and we've already read that also, only Luke is with me, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. So we see Luke mentioned by name in those, those three places. Uh, and in, and though each of those three letters were written by Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome, although probably two different imprisonments, but uh, uh, some years apart. But what else do we know about Luke who had accompanied Paul on all these journeys? Well, if we look at the we passages in Acts, we begin to conclude that we is Luke and all the other people that were there with them going through all these descriptions in the book of Acts. That that was most likely uh, Dr. Luke. And, of course, uh, uh, we go on and see that the, the Gospel of Luke was authored by Luke, more than likely. So uh, it would naturally mean that he is the author of both Acts and the Gospel that bears his name, which is almost one-fourth of the New Testament, by the way. Acts and Luke comprise almost one-fourth of the New Testament. So even though he didn't name himself, he was pretty influential. He did a lot. So we see there then his ministry uh, in Macedonia, Acts 16, 8 through 17. I'm not going to take time to read that. On his trip back to Palestine after the third missionary journey, Acts 20 and 21. And he was there on the shipwreck voyage to Rome that Paul took back to his imprisonment. And they were shipwrecked, uh, Acts 27 and 28. So it would be natural to think that Luke stayed on with Paul in Rome after his imprisonment there. So we did learn two things specifically about him that connects him to the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So this was the caliber of men that was with Paul. The last one is Demas, uh, in this photograph of this group that were with him. Uh, the last one is Demas, and uh, 
He's the only fly in the ointment. He had made a commitment to the Lord's work and was with Paul in both of his imprisonments. Uh, He was named there in Philemon 24, along with uh, Luke and Aristarchus and uh, fellow workers. Uh, But his future was sad. And Paul records the tragedy in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10. And uh, I'll read that for us. And there uh, he said, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretan has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So here's the end that we see to Demas. He loved this present world. He had not taken the teaching to heart. He was not living it. Uh, may not even have believed it. I don't know. I can't say that. But apparently from, okay, from the end there, uh, we, we see that. So Demas was out. He was uh, the only fly in the ointment. And that's actually the last that we see of him. So what's the takeaway here? Well, as I indicated at the beginning, we are much like these guys we see from one end of the spectrum to the other. We all have the potential from one end of the spectrum to the other, from those that serve faithfully and continuously to those that abandon the faith uh, or abandon the the ministry. And so uh, those that remained and were with Paul and encouraging him and having an influence in the lives of other people, even from afar, were the ones who followed the teachings that Paul was teaching. And, of course, we have those in the Scripture today, and that's what we follow today. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time to be together and to uh, learn from uh, these men that were enumerated, that we see uh, indications of other places in Scripture that have taught us a lot. And uh, we pray that our lives might be characterized by uh, these uh, characteristics that we see from the life of Paul himself and as he discipled and taught the other men that uh, we would see these characteristics in us. And when we mess up, uh, I pray that we can repent and that we can learn from where we've messed up and that we can continue on in the ministry and be useful uh, to the ministry. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.